This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Um, our panel tonight is part of this uh, series, Theory Meets Practice, Dynamic Changes in the Election Law Landscape, is what we're going to learn about tonight. Very timely. We can go straight from this and go watch the Democratic debate if you're interested, so interested. Um, and my job is really limited to introducing our moderator. Um, Dan Johnson, JD in 2000, is the lobbyist and owner of Progressive Public Affairs and has been uh, working in... Democratic and small D Democratic politics and um, with the Illinois General Assembly and various other places for uh, much of his career since graduating from the law school. And I'll leave it to Dan to introduce our panelists. Without further ado, Dan. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Hey, 6 4, Cubs are up. (laughs) So if anybody gets an update, feel free to interrupt whatever we're doing and tell us what happened. So I'm Dan Johnson. I'm uh, delighted to be here. Thanks to the law school for the honor. Panel, uh, class of 2000. Um, I will. Uh, so here's what we thought we were going to do. We're going to sort of um, have a discussion among the three panelists and then open it up. I'll, I'll ask Maureen to sort of flag when I, it's time to open it up to Q and A, uh, and we'll try to get Socratic if nobody wants to ask any questions. Um, but the thought was we're going to start sort of global, think big picture. What does democracy mean at this time, 2015, uh, in the world, particularly? Uh, in our country, and then shift to a question which I'd like all of you to think about too, which we'll ask all the panelists. If you got a phone call from former Professor Barack Obama and Mitch McConnell and John Boehner were on the line, and they said, listen, we're going to pass an election law bill. Uh, Most of you have never done that. Only Leader Harmon has done that in this room, uh, with the exception of Giovanni as well. Um, If you'd like to pass a bill that would make our country a little bit better, what law would you like us to pass? And look, we've all got to get reelected, so it can't be too crazy. We've all got to vote for it. So that's something we'll be asking all the panelists as well to think about what the Republic could use now in terms of election law that could conceivably earn some support. So uh, without further ado, we didn't really talk about order, so I think, um, I guess we'll just start with the professor, uh, since he's the closest, um, and I'll just do introductions as we go. Uh, so Professor uh, Nick Stephanopoulos, uh, Assistant Professor of Law, is basically the voting rights guy. He's sort of the uh, 2015 version of Barack Obama. He's <laughs> <laughs> all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I guess the first big question I'm going to ask everybody, I'll start with Professor Stephanopoulos, is um, maybe I'll take moderator's privilege so you get the type of answer that uh, we're thinking of looking for. Um, you know, today is the deadline for Canadians to register to vote in their federal elections, which will be held next week. And every Canadian has the opportunity to register to vote online, every single one. There's one federal agency that handles all Canadian election administration. If you miss the deadline today and you want to vote next week, every Canadian has the right to show up at their polling place and register and then vote. And they just need an affidavit from somebody else who lives there that says, this is who you are, here's my ID, you are who you say you are. That, of course, is not the case in the United States of America. And increasingly, interestingly, I find there's this great divergence that in the blue states, the ballot and the franchise is getting ever more expanded. Uh, Just this week, Governor Brown signed a law implementing automatic voter registration 
common in most of the rest of the Western world, where the burden is placed on the government, not the citizen, to register their people to vote. Here in most states, it's the burden is on the citizen, and what do you know, not everybody meets that burden. Many people are not are denied the franchise on election day. Blue states, however, like California, are moving forward. Interestingly, this afternoon, the Illinois Senate, which Leader Harmon uh, helps to lead, held a hearing on this very topic on automatic voter registration. So you can kind of see that's one direction that much of the country is going. Just a week or two ago, I think it was in Alabama, uh, where a voter ID law is now required after the Supreme Court essentially eviscerated much of the Voting Rights Act, allowing such a law to get implemented without federal constitutional protections or statutory protections, I should say. Um, then announced that most of the DMVs in most of the state will be closed, and particularly in the African-American portion of the state, making it ever more difficult for many citizens in Alabama to exercise the franchise. So in many of the red states, the franchise is getting compressed and shrunk, and thus lower turnout as a result. Not common in most countries. Most countries is one federal standard, like in Canada, which is happening just next week. So in that context, and then the other very interesting one, of course, is the new role of wealth in our democracy, uh, where wealthy people and wealthy institutions like trade associations or corporations now, thanks to Supreme Court decisions, have a much more powerful role to play in our democracy than they did a decade ago. And what does that mean when it comes to people that are actually involved in trying to get elected facing enormous wealth? Um, it's not a coincidence that the percentage of multimillionaire or billionaire elected officials in high positions of power are its highest in our country's history. Um, so that's sort of that big picture context, what's happening in democracy, what's happening in election law. I thought these esteemed panelists can sort of answer the big picture stuff. And then my hope is there'll be sort of a, a really um, you know, fluid discussion just sort of running through the three of you once you've all had a chance to, to say your initial piece, and closing with, if you get that chance that uh, your former colleague, Barack Obama, calls and says, I'm going to give you one, we're going to pass one law, uh, what would that be that would really help? So let's start with uh, Professor Stephanopoulos, who is uh, sort of the voting rights reapportionment redistricting expert at the, on the law school faculty these days. Professor. All right, thank you. Uh, and thanks very much to, to Skadden for hosting us and for putting together this, uh, this terrific event. Uh, so I guess the question on the table is, uh, if we could have one new statute passed in Congress, what would that be? We'll get there. I, I sort of wanted to start with your sort of big picture, you know, big theory. What's 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 happening with democracy mm -hmm. in America mm -hmm. these days? So I'd say so. You know, democracy is a is a complicated, contested uh, concept. Uh, there's lots of different ways to think about what it means to have a democracy. Uh, you might think about democracy in um, participatory terms. You know, a vibrant democracy is one where uh, people are uh, sort of energetically turning out to, uh, to vote and to uh, uh, participate in different aspects uh, of the democratic process. Uh, you might focus on deliberative democracy. You know, maybe the core of democracy is uh, real substantive discussion, engagement with the issues of the day. Um, I tend to think those are uh, two ambitious concepts of democracy. We should uh, aim our sights a little bit lower. Uh, so, you know, one plausible realistic goal for the U.S. would just be something like uh, at least not violating systematically what the median voter wants when it comes to uh, what party should govern us 
and uh, what sorts of policies could be enacted. Uh, that's the kind of goal that election law can do something about. Um, other more ambitious goals like good enough deliberation, high enough levels of participation, I think those are largely beyond the reach uh, of something like the statutes and policies uh, that we set up. Um, so if we make our goal that more realistic one of policy and parties elected that roughly correspond to what the average voter wants, um, I still think our democracy is uh, sorely wanting. Um, and here it's largely the fault, or in part the fault, of election law. Uh, so I'll mention a few areas where I think that um, current American election law is having a uh, sort of negative uh, anti-democratic uh, effect uh, on our system. Um, one of those areas is campaign finance, and uh, Dan alluded to that. So there we have a system where uh, a handful of wealthy people are able to contribute uh, massively more resources into the electoral process than typical voters around the country. And the net, the, to me, the, the worst consequence of this uh, funding imbalance is that when you look at the uh, preferences of legislators or the ideologies of legislators, they don't line up well at all with the preferences of the public at large. Um, but they line up unbelievably well with the preferences of donors and big spenders in the political system. So you have a uh, really sharp non-congruence between what the public looks like and what the preferences of donors and legislators look like. And you know, campaign finance is the obvious culprit that uh, explains that pattern. Um, I'll also highlight one other force that I think is having uh, a very subversive impact these days on our democracy, and uh, that's redistricting. So here, the consequence of redistricting is that uh, you often get uh, people elected that don't reflect the uh, partisan preferences of the electorate itself. And uh, at the moment, you know, there are uh, numerous states around the country where the voters, a majority of voters, voted for one party. Uh, and then because of redistricting, a different party ended up winning a majority of the seats in the legislature. And you know, this isn't just a quantitative point that the shares of seats don't quite line up with the proportions of the vote. Uh, it's a really substantive flaw because uh, that legislature, that gerrymandered legislature, then starts enacting policies, you know, putting policies into law that don't actually reflect the preferences of the electorate. Uh, and so this is going on around the country, and uh, it's uh, substantially a result of uh, the skewing of district lines in state after state. Um, so I could go on, but I'll say that you know, one realistic goal that we, that we should be judging our democracy by is uh, to what extent our elected officials accurately reflect the public. And on that metric, which is not a pie in the sky metric, we're performing relatively poorly. And two of the big reasons why we're performing relatively poorly are uh, largely unrestricted campaign finance and uh, rampant partisan gerrymandering. So I'll stop there with that nicely pessimistic take uh, <laughs> on the state of American democracy. And just actually one little addendum. Uh, 
to fix all of this, we don't have to, you know, turn to law professors and uh, or history or you know crazy uh, newfangled ideas. Um, we could just look to Canada. So it's not just that they uh, run their elections better. They also have uh, uh, caps on election spending, uh, public financing at all levels, and they don't allow their legislators to engage in self-interested redistricting. So, you know, obvious easy fixes that our neighbor to the north has already carried out, I think would go a long way towards uh, fixing the state of uh, American election law and American democracy. They also don't have any medical bankruptcies in Canada either, so that's a plus from my perspective. But they have worse weather, so there's that too. <laughs> um, For now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on to uh, Blake Searcy, he is a, um, you can read his bio, but uh, part of the didn't make it is he was actually uh, Mayor Ron Emanuel's political director in his 2011 campaign and a uh, impressive candidate for office um, just this last go-round, uh, running for Cook County Board of Commissioners, securing endorsements from the likes of his former boss, Mayor Emanuel, and uh, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, coming in second. So having a uh, sort of a guy who's a, a little bit, um, maybe you students can relate to him a little bit more since he's only a few years out of law school, not like the rest of us, uh, but making a real run for office, a lot of great insights as to what it's really like to navigate the election law thicket. So big picture, uh, Blake, what do you think about the state of American democracy as you see it? Well, first let me thank you for that introduction and say I wasn't that impressed because I lost. Um, <laughs> big picture democracy and what does democracy mean to me? For me it's pretty simple. Democracy is a quality of opportunity. And I think the best way for me to illustrate that is through a story. Before I started law school, I was tutoring some kids. It was a summer program on the west side of Chicago, which is where I'm from. I was born and raised in the Austin neighborhood. These kids were at a school called Manly, which is in Lawndale. If you don't know Lawndale, you don't know Austin, you don't know Garfield Park. These are rough communities. There was this one kid who I just couldn't reach. Every day he came in, bad attitude, upset, and it just gets to a point where you just wonder, what's wrong with this kid? And then one day he snapped back at me and he said, why should I listen to you? Why should I learn? Why should I go to college? So I can graduate and be like my sister who can't find a job. When he said that, that really, it took me back, right? Because we tell kids to do the right thing. If you go to school, you get a good high school education, you go into college, you're gonna be successful. But when they see that we've created a world where that may not be the case, how can we put the blame on them when we don't do what we tell them to do? My goal when I think about democracy and one of the things that made me run for office is I want every kid who comes from a background like mine, a single parent mom, west side of Chicago, to have the same opportunity. Look, I know for a fact that they all aren't going to get to go to Princeton, they're not going to get to go to University of Chicago for law school, they're not going to get to work at Jenner and Block, but I want to be able to look at them and say, you know what, if you do the right thing, there's something for you at the end of that rainbow, so to speak. And so for me, I think the way that we do that is we figure out how to get people reinvested in democracy. Why is reinvestment important? Reinvestment to me will lead to people showing up to the polls. I'll tell you what will keep me up at night, especially after my own race. When you're standing outside in the cold, 10 degrees, shaking hands, handing out pieces of literature to anybody who'll listen to you at a train stop, it's very humbling. You realize how much you care about a community and how much you really want to do what you're trying to do. But when you do all that, and voter turnout is something like 23%, I think it was during that election, it, it makes you wonder what's wrong. Is there something wrong with the system? Is there something wrong with the way that I presented myself? Aside from losing, 
why is it that you had all these candidates spend more money than any other race with Cook County Commissioner and we had one of the lowest turnouts in recent history? So one thing I hope we'll talk about a little bit more today is trying to get people re-engaged so we can get them to the polls. So now for the segue, uh, leader Don Harmon, uh, also a graduate of law school, um, is the one I happen to work with the most. I'm a lobbyist, and uh, Senator Harmon is a state senator. Uh, but he wears many hats, which I think are particularly relevant for today's discussion. Not only the uh, president pro tem of the Illinois Senate, he is the um, sort of um, the guy who writes all the election laws uh, in the Senate. His counsel Giovanni is here as well, uh, assist him in that endeavor. Um, Some would say it's the reverse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but also sort of to his uh, um, point, uh, he's also the um, Oak Park Township Democratic Committeeman. And sometimes we overlook these volunteer positions of people that help run the Democratic or Republican parties. But um, I think you've been the committeeman as long as you've been a senator. A little longer, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a pleasure to have someone who is, uh, you know, erudite and thoughtful, but fully engaged in the what is truly rough and tumble of passing legislation. So um, it's a unique skill set that I think is sort of perfect for tonight's discussion on where theory meets practice. So without further ado, on the big picture of where we are in American democracy, uh, Leader Don Harmon. I'm going to be really rude here and jump in and say he's my state senator, so I'm very proud of him. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it takes a very special person to represent Oak Park and the west side of Chicago. And Melrose Park. If you know anything about those areas, they're very different areas, so I'm proud <laughs> to have him as my state senator. I'll shut up. <laughs> uh, democracy is the worst form of government in all the world, except for all the rest, Winston Churchill may or may not have said. Um, I think it's maybe more appropriate to say uh, decisions are made by the people who show up. And that's something you have to remember all the time. I, I think recently two separate things happened and ended up colliding. Um, on the one hand, the recession was so deep and so long, so many people who were so concerned about their day-to-day -day lives and just getting through keeping a job, making the mortgage payment, keeping their kids in school, whatever it was, they didn't have the luxury of engaging in politics. And at the same time, as the professor said, there's been this change in campaign finance law where the, the value of money is so much more profound today than it was even 10 years ago. It's completely distorted the system. So you have these two things going on where the election laws allow really rich people to consolidate their assets and spend in unlimited amounts without even disclosing to the public that it's happening. And you've got a lot of people who are so busy that they can't focus on politics, but they can be baited into voting against their interests by people with a whole lot of money who are selling them a bill of goods that is not in their interest. And I think those two things have happened simultaneously. And it's, it's a really precarious point. The republic will survive, I'm confident. But it is a precarious point in our democracy um, that we have allowed the, the, the amplification of the voices of a handful of people who have so much money and can spend it without any real constraint um, to distort the, the outcome of our elections. And that's, that, that keeps me up at night, if anything does. Let me segue on that because uh, later tonight, um, I think all five candidates for president on the Democratic ticket, uh, I think they all believe that ought to be a, a constitutional amendment overturning Citizens United. 
I don't. I can't think of a historical analogy where certainly the leading candidates are explicitly saying there's been a recent Supreme Court case that is so bad it is going to be my condition of Supreme Court justices that they are sympathetic to overturning that decision. So I, I can't. I'm, I'm trying to think of something in the last 50 years. Um, you know, maybe on the Baker v. Carr side, you know, a, a few, but um, I, I think that's telling, right? Just how impactful that Supreme Court case cases have been. But uh, the segue I wanted to shift to is, um, you know, Senator Harmon had to sort of craft new state laws in the wake of Citizens United, and so sort of trying to navigate that. Could you talk maybe a little bit about? Um, without any heads up, so uh, on your toes, you know, what that was like is, is trying to craft a balance, given the new Supreme Court case law, to recognize these new First Amendment freedoms of very wealthy people, but also not allow those resources to wash over everything else. What we did in Illinois was, uh, within the limitations allowed, to try to uh, focus on disclosure, so at least the independent expenditure committees that can raise unlimited money have to disclose when they exist, how uh, to the extent we can compel disclosure of where the contributions come from, uh, tracking the expenditures that they make. Uh, but it's it's there's a, a lack of confidence that we're capturing everybody, um, understandably. And this is this is national money. It's it's coming in from all over the place. Um, there are money will find its way through the cracks, like water. There is there is no doubt. So we've we've tried to do that. We also uh, we have limits on campaign contributions to candidates and to parties, which uh, initially were suspended in the case of a self-funding candidate, a millionaire who runs for office and spends unlimited unlimited amounts of his or her money to advance the campaign. The limits come off other candidates. We also then created a, a, a relief if you're a candidate running against uh, an independent expenditure committee. If you're facing that kind of onslaught of spending, you can raise more than the limits would otherwise allow. It's, it's a very imperfect solution. Um, we, we aren't out of the woods on, on whether it all holds up uh, to, the, to the federal court uh, rules. Uh, we're trying to manage our own affairs within the state in a way that is fair to the electorate, but we have a long way to go. And maybe could you talk a little bit about um, some of the recent expansions of the franchise um, that Illinois has helped to pioneer and sort of your, your views on you know, the efficacy of that and the results? And sure. Um, I was thinking about this in preparation. Um, when I took office in, after the 2002 election, we were still on the hook to fully implement the, uh, implement the Help America Vote Act. We still had the motor voter cards that were only uh, good for to let you show up and vote in federal elections. It was a mess. Uh, we've made dramatic strides in Illinois. Um, just in the last few years, we, we have created the online voter registration opportunity. Uh, we have extended, we have created and extended early voting and grace period registration and voting. So now we effectively have a 40-day election day. Um, you can register to vote right up to uh, election day in each precinct now. That's, uh, we turn that from a pilot program to a permanent program. As you mentioned, we just had a hearing today on automatic voter registration. If you get a driver's license or renew your driver's license, you're automatically registered to vote. It just flips the default from opting in to having to opt out. Um, that's pretty dramatic, and, and uh, we took a lot of flack. It was clearly a political partisan issue in Illinois. 
Um, and I told my Republican colleagues, I, I will happily die on the sword. If, if, if making it easier for people to vote is a bad thing, I will I'll wear that. I can't see any scenario where it is a bad thing to make it easier for people to vote and to encourage people to vote. With same-day voter registration, the pilot program was an enormous success. We had people waiting in line for hours after the polls closed in order to register and to vote. Um, that's now permanent. I, 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 the automatic voter registration would be a much more efficient way to get that done if everybody is uh, registered, as, unless they explicitly say, I don't want to register. The sad fact is most people think that if they register to vote, they'll have to serve on juries. <laughs> if they have a driver's license, they're going to have to serve on juries anyway, so we might want to tell them that. You're not, uh, you're not doubling your odds here by, uh, by registering to vote. But uh, it, we should make it easier because we've, we've had countless voter ID uh, bills floated in the Senate. We've killed them. It is, it is, a, it is a partisan attempt to, to keep people who would likely vote for Democratic candidates from voting. It's, it is just, that's just what it is. And the harder you make it to vote, you're making it harder for seniors to vote, you're making it harder for people of color to vote, you're making it harder for young people to vote. I, I would rather be on the side of letting everybody vote. And I think if, if I could add, um, along those lines, uh, in 2014, there was the passage of the Right to Vote Amendment, which actually amended the uh, state constitution to make it clear that regardless of sex, race, a variety of other factors, that people should have the right to vote. And a lot of that was done in the wake of uh, Shelby County versus Holder. You, you mentioned earlier that there were um, a lot of so-called red states. I think what I found surprising was there were blue states or northern states that you saw engage in laws and pass laws that might restrict access to voting rights. Um, there were so many people, for those of us, and I know, I'm sure you saw this, Senator, when you were advocating for the right to vote amendment, so many people said, we're in Illinois, why do we need it? Why do we need it here? We weren't covered by Shelby County versus Holder. We, we weren't one of the um, covered states. Why do we need it? And then it's funny, right as we're saying that, you see states begin to make it harder and harder for people to access the right to vote. So along those same lines, giving everyone access, I'm glad that we had a General Assembly that did pass the right to vote amendment, even if it is belts and suspenders, so to speak, to show that Illinois is committed to ensuring that uh, as many people as possible have the right to vote. Um, let me just say, it's a really nice thing living in a state that I think is making progress on voting rights issues uh, as opposed to regressing, which is what's, what's happening um, in a lot of parts of the country. Uh, and so you know, Illinois really has improved quite a bit when it comes to uh, access to the franchise, uh, the protection of the right to vote, uh, campaign finance uh, limits, uh, election administration. Um, you know, these are all areas of progress here, and uh, in, in too many places around the country, they are distinctly not areas of progress. Um, I would point out a couple areas where I think more gains could still be realized in Illinois. Uh, so one of those is campaign finance. Um, at the moment, Illinois has uh, restrictions on contributions, uh, so it's an effort to um, uh, restrain the amount of money going to candidates, but uh, there's uh, no affirmative grant of money on the other side uh, from the state to provide public financing to people running for office. Uh, a number of other states in the country do have public financing systems. Uh, there's decent, although not amazing, evidence these systems do make a difference. Uh, different people get elected as a result of them, and donors, uh, private donors, have less influence in systems uh, with some kind of public financing. Uh, there's also more creative public financing models out there at the city level that haven't yet been tried at the state level, but since Illinois has uh, legislators who are you know, positively inclined. These might be models that are worth a shot. 
Uh, so here I'm thinking of the New York City model, where uh, every dollar that somebody gives to a candidate gets matched either five to one or six to one uh, by the city. So it multiplies individual contributions to, uh, to candidates. Uh, that's resulted in public money, you know, multiplying these small donations, uh, d uh, sort of dwarfing and replacing a lot of big private money in New York City elections. Um, that, I think, is a wonderful development that makes elected officials in New York a lot less reliant on the pocketbooks and the preferences of uh, donors. Um, another area where I think Illinois is currently certainly not a leader is uh, redistricting. So, you know, Illinois, like most states, allows uh, self-interested legislators to draw the district lines. Not surprisingly, that process is susceptible to uh, massive abuses, both protecting incumbents and also disadvantaging legislators from the other party. Um, here, too, there's something like a dozen states that have a better model. Uh, roughly uh, 12 or 13 states around the country have either bipartisan or relatively nonpartisan uh, commissions that do redistricting. Um, the best evidence is that commissions are much better than self-interested legislators at drawing district lines. Uh, they produce maps that are more competitive, that elect more minorities, that are more fair to both parties, that have higher levels of competitiveness. You know, pick your redistricting value, and commissions will achieve it better than uh, self-interested people doing the line drawing. So I think that's one more area, in addition to campaign finance, where um, Illinois could advance a lot and hopefully uh, will in the near future. Uh, as a self-interested politician, we have to respond. <laughs> <laughs> Present company excluded. Oh, no, no, you can't exclude me. Um, so on public financing, I've sponsored legislation to create pilot programs for public financing for judicial candidates in, in particular. I'm in favor of it. I think the caution is in this environment we've just described with unlimited amounts of money coming in, you cannot stop someone from spending their own money. You cannot stop currently independent expenditure committees coming in and, and uh, swamping the vote of a self uh, or a, uh, a publicly financed campaign. So you have to be very careful uh, about that. Uh, on redistricting reform as well, uh, I've sponsored redistricting reform for the state. I think there's a better way for us to do it. Um, commissions can create better outcomes, but they can also create, create much worse outcomes. I think redistricting reform needs to be done at the, at the national level if we're going to do this, because state by state uh, unilateral disarmament is a bad thing. And again, it's partisan. Republicans have done a much better job than Democrats have of uh, creating a, a system in many states where they have built up the redistricting into an insurmountable advantage in the House of Representatives in particular. But in Illinois right now, we're going through a debate over redistricting. And the commission form that's been proposed now would absolutely not elect more minorities and more women. In fact, it would elect fewer if it were allowed to go forward. Um, I can get into all of the substance if you want, but just the fact that it is the plutocrats pushing this in Illinois should give you some sense that it is not about advancing the interest of minority voters and representatives. It's about uh, winning in Illinois when they can't win in a fair map. The map that we passed last time, the map we're operating under today, uh, Bill Brady, the Republican candidate for governor immediately before the map, would have won 31 of the 59 Senate districts, a majority. Bruce Rauner won 35 of the 59 Senate districts. These are competitive districts if both parties fielded good candidates. We, as Democrats, have done a better job. 
the congressional map, we have 18 congressional districts. I would say six are, are clearly Democratic districts, six are clearly Republican districts. The other six are genuinely swing districts. That's a competitive map. You are never going to draw a competitive district in Chicago between the parties. You're not going to draw a competitive district in central Illinois. There are some districts by nature of geography, if they're going to be compact and contiguous, they're going to elect one party or the other. So you create the competition in those swing districts, and the delegation will then go back and forth uh, depending on the, the uh, alignment of the state. Uh, I can say a couple things on the on the redistricting front. One is, you know, I I don't like to think of myself as a as a plutocrat. I don't I don't think I've been uh, labeled uh, uh, such before. Um, You're not I'm financing a, it. That's, I'm that's certainly not financing it. Also, yeah. I'm not financing it, but you know, I, I helped to uh, to draft the language of the amendment. So yeah, the, the plutocrats may or may not be the ones who are um, providing some of the financing for it. Uh, they're certainly not the ones that dictated the actual um, content of the amendment, which is. Uh, modeled on best practices around the country. You know, the, the California proposal, or the, the current California system, um, is widely considered the, the state of the art nationwide, and it produced um, fantastic results in the last two elections, uh, which are the two elections it's been used in. The Illinois proposal is effectively indistinguishable from the California proposal, uh, except that it's a little bit better uh, in two respects. Um, one is that it provides uh, the country's first ever explicit partisan fairness requirement. So uh, it says that any district plan shall not have the intent or the effect of uh, overly advantaging or disadvantaging one side or the other. Um, that's uh, uh, even a step beyond what California's uh, amendment does. Uh, also, there are new and unprecedented protections for minority voting rights in the Illinois proposal. So uh, a common concern for minority voters around the country is that they uh, can only ever get, as a matter of law, uh, districts that are more than 50% minority drawn for them. And so this limits the uh, possible extent of minority representation in states. So Illinois' proposal for the first time says that if you can draw districts where minorities would have the opportunity to win, uh, those districts have to be drawn, even if the minority percentage in those districts is below 50%. So this opens the door to significant gains in minority representation. Uh, it would also put Illinois at the forefront of the entire country uh, in the kinds of protections that are in state law uh, for minority voters. So, um, you know, I, I fully agree that there are bad commission proposals that are possible. I think there are states around the country uh, that have commissions that I would consider not to be uh, especially well done. But uh, in Illinois, the proposal is building on and improving uh, the current state of the art. And so, you know, I don't know who's funding it, but I know who drafted it. And we were inspired in drafting it by the best there is around the country, and we thought of ways to, you know, tweak it and improve it further. I, I, I'm going to disagree with a couple of points. Um, we in Illinois for 15 years we have been uh, using the maps to maximize minority participation through the use of uh, crossover districts, uh, uh, minority districts that, that put together uh, African American and Latino voters to create districts that will lack minority uh, representation, even though uh, the no one group has a 50% plus one uh, benchmark. There are also there are two, in my view, fatal flaws in the redistricting proposal that are probably not intended, but certainly advantaged by the, uh, for the folks that are financing it. One is 
the, the on its face the adherence to the Federal Voting Rights Act, which sounds good, except it creates a ceiling rather than a floor. Illinois has more expansive laws uh, supporting minority voting rights. Those would be eliminated by the MAP proposal. Because if, if, if the Federal Voting Rights Act is locked in or if it's eroded, the Illinois uh, redistricting goes with it. We can't augment that as we have. The second is something that's really, I think, um, uh, nefarious in, in many ways. There is a requirement that we respect municipal boundaries, which sounds good on its face, but it's Republican code for, plat for packing black voters into city districts. If you can't cross over from the city of Chicago into the suburbs to draw districts and you have to pack people, or if there's an African-American suburb or a Latino suburb, you've got to pack them all into a district instead of maximizing their voice in multiple districts. Uh, it's been used in other parts of the country very effectively, but it's, it's in my view, it's just code for let's elect fewer black and Latino representatives. Um, I just had a couple of notes, and we can move on if, if um, that's the, the desire. Uh, so in, in terms of you know, locking in the Federal Voting Rights Act, there's nothing in the proposal that says that uh, the Illinois proposal has to be interpreted the same way as the Federal Voting Rights Act, or that if something happens to the Federal Voting Rights Act, that's going to change the interpretation of the, uh, the Illinois language. Um, the only thing that... Uh, the Illinois proposal does is that it goes beyond the Federal Voting Rights Act in precisely the way that minority voters and communities have been asking for around the country. So, you know, the biggest limit on the Federal Voting Rights Act nationwide is the fact that it never provides protection to minority opportunity districts that are less than 50% minority. So, moving beyond that significant limit, which applies in the rest of the country, uh, I think would be a dramatic advance for minority communities in Illinois. Uh, in no way would it be a step backward. Um, and then on respecting municipal boundaries, uh, this is one of roughly half a dozen criteria for line drawing that are in the proposal. Uh, it's a, a very customary uh, uh, sort of line drawing criterion. Um, a supermajority of states around the country have requirements in place to respect municipal boundaries. Um, I agree that if this was your predominant criterion when redistricting, uh, that would be a problem for some of the reasons uh, that we heard, that it would tend to um, over-concentrate people who tend to live in cities, uh, those being uh, minorities and Democrats. Um, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. Uh, the reason why I don't worry at all about this proposal uh, resulting in Republican gerrymanders is the other criteria in the proposal. So as I mentioned before, there is an explicit partisan effect requirement here. Uh, if respecting municipal boundaries was going to result in an erosion of minority representation or in a uh, plan that was anti-democratic and pro-Republican, the partisan effect criterion would stop that. So you know, I don't think it makes sense to zero in on one particular out of half a dozen line drawing criteria uh, and blow it out of proportion when its impact is going to be uh, uh, prevented. Any negative impact it might have is going to be prevented by the other uh, criteria that the commission also has to follow. And uh, I have to say this. I have very strong opinions about this, but my firm represents a uh, client who is involved in this right now, so that's why I'm being silent. Uh, but fortunately, you didn't need me to talk because I think we got to see both sides. <laughs> You're biting your tongue. There you go. Right. 
Excellent. Um, so I think we're going to be um, segue to the uh, question of, if you get that call from former Professor Obama and uh, Leader McConnell and uh, Speaker Boehner, still the speaker, right? Today. Today. <laughs> right? They said, we're going to give you one. What's the federal statute? Um, and the reason I ask it is, um, and I'm going to do a quick segue. Who here has given money to a political candidate in the last 24 months? So my pitch is, it should be all of us. And part of campaign finance reform that doesn't really get enough, I think, attention is that engaging means um, participating and sending in whatever amount of money you can afford. Everybody can send in 10 bucks, even if you're a student. Right? But that's part of participating. And I don't think we do enough to encourage people to feel proud about being a donor, a small donor, but taking some ownership. So the extent you can help influence your friends and neighbors to go send five or 10 bucks to whatever candidate inspires you, I think we should. Um, but so the question to the panelists are, um, what's the federal statute that would help these days? What, what should Congress and the president do to help improve our democracy? And we'll start with. Um, Oh, the guy that drafts the laws, I guess. The department. <laughs> um, here I am not a self-interested politician because I'm not running for a federal office. Um, but I, I think we need to meet in the middle. I think that candidates for federal office should be able to raise money in slightly larger increments so that they are not spending most of their days calling people asking for $5,000 in unmarked bills. Um, I think that we, I would ask them to apply the same rules to um, independent expenditure committees, because I, I, I understand the First Amendment protects an individual's right to spend money, but it doesn't, I think, protect their right to amalgamate their money with other people's money and then spend it in this black box sort of fashion. So, um, if you're going to if you're going to put together money from multiple sources, you have to subject yourself to the same limits. If you're going to spend money as an individual or as a corporation, you have to disclose it. Thank you. For me, again, going back to the thought of how do we get people engaged and to get people to come to the polls, this is an idea that I've toyed with for a couple of years in my mind. I mean, literally just in my mind. This is the first time that I've ever vocalized it. But think about some way to use a tax rebate or some other financial incentive to get people to vote. Uh, maybe it'd have to be you have to vote in X number of consecutive uh, state local elections uh, in addition to so many federal elections. Maybe you have a lottery. And if you think about it, the lottery could only be something like $10,000, right? I bet you maybe you get an increase in people voting. Um, as that comes out of my mouth, I immediately think if a $10,000 chance of winning $10,000 is your incentive to vote, then do you really care? Uh, the thing that I struggle with when I talk about getting people to the polls, uh, especially when I think about elections with low turnout, do we think sometimes that when we have low turnout, maybe that means the people who are really invested showed up? I don't think I believe that because I think that um, voting is difficult. Uh, the best example that I can give for that is thinking about the, the closing seconds of a campaign, right? Any, any good candidate, or at least if you're one who's in a close race, you're standing somewhere shaking somebody's hand at a public place trying to get them to a polling place. Uh, I was doing this back in March 2014, and I looked at my campaign manager and I said, you know what, if you think about it, the polls close at 7. It's 6.30 right now. I'm telling this person to go vote. If they don't already know where the polling place is, they're going to have to look up their polling place, go to that place, but to me, especially in the community where I'm from, what I would like to see is if you can buy a pack of cigarettes somewhere, you should be able to vote there. 
So try to move towards making voting just that easy so that on election day you don't have to go to one specific place at your polling place because you get in that handshake before the 11th hour, you're not going to go vote if you haven't already. Um, so I was trying to think, what do I think is a, a worse problem right now, uh, campaign finance or redistricting for the country? And I think the edge would have to go to campaign finance uh, for the reason that, you know, not every district map is unfair. So, you know, it's not, and, and uh, sometimes even if you add up a lot of individual unfair state maps, you end up with a Congress that they kind of balance out on either side and, uh, you know, the net outcome isn't all that bad. Um, whereas campaign finance, you know, the problem of big money in politics influencing representatives uh, and diverting their, uh, their votes and their, um, their efforts away from what voters want, that's ubiquitous. And that applies you know, in every state and at every level. Uh, so I think campaign finance is more urgent for a single bill than, uh, than redistricting. Um, when it comes to what that bill should be, you know, uh, because of Citizens United and because of other Supreme Court decisions, there are uh, really significant limits on what Congress could do. You know, Congress couldn't uh, limit any kind of independent expenditure. And uh, the core issue right now with super PACs and with uh, super wealthy people spending their own money, that's considered independent expenditures that are constitutionally not regulable. Uh, so I think with spending limits off the table, some kind of uh, robust, well-funded public financing system is the, the best alternative. Um, there are several really good ideas out there. So I mentioned the New York City uh, multiple match system. Uh, another proposal would be to um, have vouchers for every person in the country. Uh, you know, every voter is entitled to $25 or $50, let's say, which you can then give to candidates or to parties or to, or to PACs as you see fit. Um, one little law like that uh, would radically transform, in a good way, I think, the, the character of our elections. Um, as long as you funded the public system well enough. So if you gave you know, everybody a dollar, it wouldn't be enough. Um, if you gave every voter $50 or $100, the Treasury could certainly afford it. And that would then be a real powerful counterpoint to all the uh, private spending on elections. Um, so I kind of see, you know, if the federal government is willing to spend a few billion dollars, let's say, per election cycle, so you know, a tiny drop in uh, the ocean of the federal budget. Um, I think that would be enough to counterbalance a lot of the private spending that uh, people are complaining about these days. And it would be enough to insert um, a very powerful sort of moderating, uh, democratizing force that could counteract the sort of centrifugal anti-democratic force that uh, big spending um, is having. So I think if I had to choose one law, I would say give every voter $100 that they can only spend on uh, political donations. Um, and I think that you know, one paragraph law would do more good for American democracy than um, anything else I can think of. Let's throw it open. So I'd like your thoughts on uh, two problems that are tangentially connected to this topic of making it easier to register. So one, while it's easier to register as a voter, it seems to me, at least in Illinois, that access to the ballot for candidates is not something that we make it easier. There's a signature objection process, which basically means that most 
non-party uh, and or grassroots uh, candidates don't ever make it to the ballot, which basically limits the ability of people to have choice. So even if you could vote, you don't have many choices. Right, so what do you think about this process of signature challenges and maybe switching to a, a process where you just pay a nominal fee to get on the ballot? The other problem is, despite efforts to make things much easier for people to register to vote, uh, there doesn't, that doesn't seem to be a very good solution to the voter apathy that's been going on in the last 20-something years. So what are the kinds of sticks or carrots that we could introduce out there? Maybe penalizing people on the, the stick side, or I don't know what kind of carrots you could hand out to make this voter apathy problem go away. Let me, let me just start by maybe putting a question to the group. No one should be embarrassed, but does everybody understand how you get on the ballot in Illinois? I don't think people get it. It's kind of been the same process. I'll give you a very brief overview. Basically, I have to go in whatever district I'm running in and get people in that district to sign a sheet of paper that has a whole lot of technical rules on what that sheet of paper needs to say to put me on that ballot. So what happens is if I get 500 people, let's say, to sign that sheet and I need 300 ballot signatures, one of my opponents will go down to the Board of Elections and say, you know what, 250 of those signatures aren't valid. Oftentimes when opponents do this, um, the challenges are meritless, I think, in, in a lot of instances. And it spends a lot of time and financial resources for candidates. Either you, you buy an election lawyer to help you defend against that challenge, you spend your own time down at the county board going through signatures. What they do is they compare your signature versus signatures on voter registration cards from years ago. Oftentimes the signatures are different, even if you do have the signature from the same person. And candidates find themselves in cases where they're not, they don't make the ballot because they don't have enough valid signatures. So that's the process that he's talking about. So. Um, cups and four, ladies and gentlemen. Cups what? Cups and four. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the question of ballot access, it, you, you try to strike a balance because um, you want viable candidates to be able to run for office. You don't, I would argue, want a situation where someone pays $25 and gets on the ballot, because then you'll have 20 or 30 candidates, most of whom aren't viable candidates. But it, it clogs up the ballot. It makes it much more difficult for voters to figure out who's a, a, a real candidate and who's not. I, I would argue we've struck a reasonable balance. The, the signature requirements in Illinois are not that onerous. Um, for, the, for to run for the state house, it's 500 signatures to run for uh, Alderman in the city of Chicago, we just raised it significantly, so it's between three and 500 signatures, depending on the voter turnout in the ward. Uh, Blake has described a very dark view of this, of this process. If you can't go out and find 500 registered voters who live in your district and get them to sign, then maybe you aren't a viable candidate. It's, it's, it's an important process. It shows that kind of engagement. It shows that ability to get out in your district. Um, People, are, I have found in the last several cycles that the, the election authorities are much more sympathetic to the candidates. And far fewer signatures are struck because the signature looks a little different or they signed D. Harmon rather than Donald Harmon. Uh, they err on the side of leaving the names uh, on, the, on the petitions. So I, I think I, I'm loath to create a system where you pay to get on the ballot. And I'm, I'm concerned about a situation where it is so easy to get on the ballot. You have a lot of frivolous candidacies that don't the contribute. That, the states that do have that kind of system, has the like, world fallen apart in those states? I don't know who has that system. There, there, there's some places out there that have like, nominal fees. 
fees or uh, a much simpler system to get into. It doesn't seem like the world is falling apart. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where those. I don't know where you pay a nominal fee. I would be really worried about if it was a thousand dollars or twenty-five hundred dollars. Some states may do that, and that creates a real disincentive for folks to run. I think you want to be able to prove yourself through elbow grease. I, let, let me say this. I think it is correct that your ability to get signatures is, in some semblance, a test of your organization. Right. That, that's the thought behind it. Is, is what type of support do you have in your community? And yes, it's also a way that incumbents, frankly, protect themselves. But that being said, my problem isn't that you need 500 signatures to get on the ballot, but it's that I think there are cases where people have 500 or however many valid signatures and don't get on the ballot. That is just as undemocratic as having a ballot that's full of candidates that makes it hard for people to determine who to vote for. Um, I went through a ballot challenge. I succeeded at that challenge and finished second, but I succeeded at that challenge. And so, um, but a big part of it was how come I only need 400 some odd signatures, but just because my opponent happened to raise a lot more money than I did early in the race and had some money to blow. So he said, you know what, I'm going to make this kid go through a ballot challenge. He spent 10, 20 grand, occupied my time, my campaign's time. And uh, we ended up having something like 800 ballot signatures at the end of the count when we only needed 400 or something. So I think the issue is it becomes a tool, a campaign tool. It's not so much a way to test um, people's muster, people's ability to organize. Now, do you switch to a financial-based system? I don't think that the, the system where you put down 1,000 or 2,500 is so undemocratic or so much as a disincentive. Because let me tell you, if you can't put together 2,500, I don't know what race you're going to win in uh, Illinois or in Cook County. Um, I wish that was not the way that the world is. I'm, I'm hard-pressed to find a way that we create an election system where you don't have to raise an amount that little. So it may be I'd like to see more about states and counties and cities that use a type of a system that maybe that is a more democratic way instead of trying to get people to go out there. Because more often than not, I mean, just so you know how a lot of people end up getting on the ballot is they pay people. So really, it's they have money to pay people to go and gather signatures. So maybe it's less a show of organization and more a show of how much money you have, which is exactly what we're trying to fight. You're focusing a great deal on money in politics uh, and talking about public financing. We had public financing in presidential campaigns after the Watergate scandal up until the former University of Chicago law professor chose <laughs> in 2008 not to do it. And that's, I think, opened up the Pandora's box we're talking about to a large extent, and also combined with the fact that there's equal amounts of money on both sides. You know, there are environmental funders who put a tremendous amount of money. There's the trial lawyers to match the Koch brothers and others. Yet, in all of that, recent studies on voter behavior show that money is becoming less and less effective in getting to the voters. And that what is effective is individual contacts back to the old system. How do we get back to the old system where in the 2012 campaign of that former University of Chicago law professor effectively used personal contact across states using technology, using uh, the internet to accomplish that. But I, I, I wonder whether this focus on the amount of the money that's being spent, which I consider unnecessary, but we lose the real impact of what it's having and, and that everybody accesses it. So what do we do to get back to making the, uh, the key being, how do you contact the voter? How do you get them motivated to vote? And do we do what some Western states do, where they mail the ballot to everybody? They don't have to go into the polling place. And in Oregon, I believe, there are no polling places. You send your ballot in by mail. Uh 
there's a lot there. I'll address a couple of the points. I'm sure the other panelists will want to say um, some things as well. Uh, so a couple of points. So, you know, money in politics has a lot of effects, uh, some of which are more or less clear than others. So I agree with you. The evidence isn't great that spending more money gets you a lot more votes. You know, if you look at studies that compare uh, the candidate who spent more to the one who spent less, they have a heck of a difficulty uh, identifying a causal relationship between um, amount of money spent and uh, you know, votes received in the election. So you know, in my view, one saving grace of all this money that's flowing through our system is that it's unclear what it's actually doing to voters. Like it may just be you know, uh, uh, money going straight into the garbage can or you know, lining the pockets of the TV networks but not actually affecting uh, election outcomes. So you know, that's, that's a, a potential silver lining to, to the current uh, situation. Um, however, a different impact of money is not on the voters, it's on the candidates themselves who have to raise the money or who benefit when the money is spent on their behalf. Um, and here, I think the evidence is a lot worse. So this goes back to what I talked about at the very beginning. You know, if you look at the preferences of the U.S. population, it looks like a bell curve. You know, most Americans are moderates. Uh, there are relatively few Americans that are all, all the way on either fringe. Um, however, if you look at the ideological distribution of donors and its big spenders, it's massively bimodal. So, you know, moderate rich people don't give a lot of money, don't involve themselves that much. It's extreme rich people that tend to uh, give a lot of money on both sides. Um, that wouldn't be a concern if it weren't then for the fact that if you look at the ideological distribution of politicians, it looks exactly like the ideological distribution of the donors and the spenders and nothing like the bell curve distribution of the general public. So to me, you know, the reason why I'm exercised about money in politics is not that I think it buys elections, um, it's that it buys politicians. Um, and I feel like you know, that effect is eminently backed up by the data and is a, a real problem in our country. Because it means that whoever wins, they don't actually do what the median voter wants. They end up doing what their donors and what the people who spent on their behalf want. Well, and what supports that, if you look at the history, if you go back to Congress in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, you had moderates who controlled both houses at the federal level. And you lost those. The great middle in both chambers is gold. On the, on the, the, the channels of communication, well, I can't, I can't, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count federal money. That's just, that's a different, <laughs> different order of magnitude. Um, I, I would say that differential spending does matter depending on the, the, the uh, uh, how it, uh, in order it is. If, if I had run a campaign I spent $400,000 and my opponent spends $300,000, I would bet it doesn't make that much difference. If I spend $120,000 and my opponent spends $20,000, I imagine it makes a huge difference. Um, so that's that's we well, don't worry about that. But President Obama did not spend sixty or eighty million dollars not communicating with the voters and just going back to neighbors talking to neighbors. The channels of communication are so different today, and we're all rethinking how that works. The old model of a precinct captain going door to door—it's really difficult. People don't want to answer their doors to the, even if it's a neighbor. You got to think of affinity groups, your book club, your PTA. How do you get that kind of social media, electronic communication from validators that you trust? And that's expensive. 
So that money is being spent, but it's being spent in different ways to try to get that one-on-one -on -one communication channel opened up. And maybe it will become less expensive as it's refined. Could you? So I'm, I, this is not a school of communications panel, but I'm fascinated that we haven't talked at all about the rise of cable media, 24-7 communications, and the fact that the conversations become soundbite and so partisan on each side. And I think that's a lot to do with how you've lost the interest of the middle. Uh, because, and, and the African factor has gone up tremendously. But it is money and politics controlling the message and controlling the media. So do any of the legislative processes lead to controlling that or making that a more fair channel of communication? I think people used to try to win the news cycle, and then it came the 24-hour news cycle, so it was kind of, now people are kind of win the Twitter cycle, which is really bad. Uh, but I, I would say that even that has an expiration date on it. The number of people, young people in particular, who don't watch television, they watch things on their iPad and on demand, and you know, what I watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. Those, those channels that people develop are no longer uh, useful. And people are trying to find ways. It's, it's the, uh, the Facebook ad. The amount of money we spend trying to reach people in the margins of their, their internet browser is <laughs> remarkable. But it's the last, the last channel we seem to have. So things are going to change over the next 10 or 20 years. I've talked to pollsters who say, we're, we're not going to be able to poll state legislative races in 10 years. Because just people won't talk to us. Everyone's on cell phone. It's going to be a completely different model. And I think additionally, um, one thing that consultants who are a lot smarter than I am told me that if you look at those stations, especially uh, you know, the Fox News, let's say somebody who people tend to think is conservative, people tend to um, gravitate towards those stations because that's their base, right? So it's almost like, fine, we have these two stations, or whatever you want to call it, and the people who are on the far end just go to those stations. Everybody else in between really isn't necessarily tuning in and being influenced by that. So I find that a bit reassuring. I think it's also reassuring that you know the audiences for all of these channels are really small right. compared yeah. to the country as a whole. So I, I tend to think that like you know very little that happens on Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or any other cable news channel uh, really makes a difference for anything material in the country. Yeah. It's like, like I want to hear like what I want to hear. Let me turn it on. I mean that's, that's noise. what people are like me. background yeah, exactly. noise and tell me what I already know. Yeah. So I've been uh, notified that uh, the bell is rung. It's time to go to uh, next class. <laughs> Classroom five. Uh, thanks everybody for coming. I'm sure the panel is going to stick around for a moment before we all rush to see the debate that started already. Thank, thank you, Dan. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.